Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life-work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone, welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of the Teachers Podcast. In this episode, I interview Juliette Adloon, mental health first aider, an educational consultant and coach, about how to look after adults in school. It's often the case that we hear that it's all about the children, but often this is of detriment to the adults. Julia and I both believe that the all about the children approach is flawed. If we want to have a school where children are taught successfully by experienced adults who value their own lives as well as the lives of the children, we need to start teaching them how and showing them that this is the way to success and understanding why it's so important as a collective with no judgments. Hopefully that does my chat with Juliet some justice. I think you'll be really inspired by what she has to say. Also, I'm looking for reviews for the podcast, so I'd really appreciate it if you could leave me one on the platform you are listening on. Let's get to the interview. So, Juliet, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Thank you for welcoming me. I'm looking forward to having a good old chat. Yes, so am I, actually. So, obviously, we've just um, been having a bit of a chat before we started. A million questions um, to ask you, and I think one of the reasons is that you know, this is just such a hot topic to be talking about mental health, but also adults' mental health. You know, it's not just all about children, but we'll get into that later. So the first thing I always like everyone to do is tell me the life story. So go. Well, where to start? Um, I won't start right from the very beginning, but I certainly do have such very strong recollections from being quite young of always wanting to be a teacher it's just something I've always wanted to do I've had many other interests and passions I'm particularly passionate about music as well um, and I've you know taken that to a quite a high level however teaching is just something I've always wanted to do um, and they say don't they um, some some teachers have it like through them like a stick of rock the word teacher mm, and, yeah. and I feel I've got that um, and I was fortunate enough, I suppose, to have that from a relatively young age because it then gave me my pathway. And I really saw it as a clear pathway of I need to get my O-levels and GCSEs in order for me to get my A-levels, in order for me to go and train to be a teacher. And then I want to be a teacher and, and, and go into leadership and be a head teacher. And it was just like this, this journey, this flight path that I had. Mm-hmm. And I've been very fortunate to go along that flight path. I was born and brought up in Manchester, went to one of the largest comprehensives in Manchester And I think that's had a huge, huge influence on my life and on the sorts of things I want to do and the sorts of people I enjoy working with. In other words, the complete spectrum of society and the world in terms of backgrounds, religions, um, cultures, the whole range is something that I've always been brought up within and enjoyed working within. So Manchester was a great training ground for me for that. 
I was lucky enough also to be in the education system in Manchester when we had things like free instrumental tuition. <laughs> um, and that I know that's a privilege um, and uh, I'm, maybe I'm sounding too old um, but it was brilliant and, and that again fostered my love of music too. So working through my exams uh, was really pleased to be able to come to Homerton in Cambridge where the luxury at that point um, in a B.Ed was to do effectively your four years and half of it was education based so for primary education teaching and half of it was your subject so I studied music and I studied primary teaching and I've not left Cambridge since uh, <laughs> I found myself here with my first job um, having loved my final teaching practice school a uh, real baptism of fire uh, great children really appreciative of energy and passion and enthusiasm and that's where I was for my first four years of my teaching career um, very much enjoyed that made some good relationships with other professionals who'd had all sorts of journeys to get to where they were as well worked under different leadership that was quite interesting to be in one school but under lots of different leaders mm. and to experience what that was like and to feel it when you were actually in the school what did that feel like to be with different leaders and I think that's what inspired me to then want to go into leadership so I I had led as a team and I'd led on PSHE which was brand new and shiny Mm -hmm. So I introduced PSHE to the school and the teachers, uh, some of the other teachers didn't know what it was. So little old me was <laughs> banging the drum of personal social and health education. So again, a little seed as to what was to come later for me. Yeah. And then I went into my deputy headship. Really interesting time um, with leading a group of staff who were quite... Um, ranging in their needs and also working under some challenging circumstances under the inspection framework at that time mm -hmm. again really successful and enjoyed that and learning again from those around me and that then led to the next step which was to do some acting headship there and then to move into the advisory service in the local authority where I have been since and I have also undertaken further headship opportunities within that time. So that's sort of where I end up with my teaching career and education. But threaded right from the very beginning, you will have heard me talk about that sort of PSHE element and that inclusiveness and enjoying working with lots of range of people. And so that also led me to a particular strand of the way I developed my practice as an advisor. And my advisory role has always been in schools, what I call a, a hands-on approach. So my work in school improvement has been not just saying what needs to be done, but showing people how it could be done. 
and working alongside them to do it. Call it a sort of a loose model of coaching and mentoring. I call it developmental work. Um, and by doing that, very often in challenging circumstances where schools were in Ofsted categories or they'd experienced a big change of influx of a certain um, nature because uh, certain groups of children have suddenly moved in or they've lost big groups of children for all sorts of, you know, reasonable um, reasons. Because I was working in schools often in difficulty, I was finding that as time went on, the things that I noticed most about what made my work impactful was because I built relationships with people. Mm. And because I didn't employ a one size fits all, what I did and what I still do is bespoke work. So I start where the school is mm. and then help to bring it forward. And because I was doing this and doing lots of one-to-one -one work with people, I found myself at some juncture thinking, sometimes it feels like I'm doing more than school improvement because people are telling me all sorts of things about themselves, mm. sometimes related to school, sometimes nothing to do with school. And I wanted to do something to give myself a little bit of gravitas, I suppose, in what, in what that was in that part of my role. So I explored and I researched and I came across something which I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of before, which is mental health first aid. Mm. Mostly when you, when you say to people, oh, mental health first aid, they go, what physical health first aid? And you go, no, mental health first aid. And so I decided to, in my own time, because it's part-time by that point, um, having had my family, I decided to train as a mental health first aider. And it's a two-day course. And that's what I did. And I thought, this is wonderful. And I was sitting in the course thinking, this is one of the best courses I've ever been on. How marvelous. And not only that, I want to do this. I want to train people in mental health first aid. Mm -hmm. This is incredibly exciting. And so I did. <laughs> and, and here I am now um, having the absolute joy of having two jobs, which I love. And mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference. I think that makes a big difference to anybody's life um, that you still have pressures, you still have stresses, but if you love the jobs you are in or the job you have, it makes a big impact and a big difference on your outlook on that and how you feel about yourself and how you fit into that yeah. society of work. How important do you think it is for a school to have a mental health first aider? Oh, well, um, as you know, it's statutory to have a physical first aider. Mm -hmm. And logic says that given that everybody has physical health and everybody has mental health, in my humble opinion, and indeed in lots of other people's opinion, um, mm. that would be a great way to work to make it as statutory as physical first aid. Mm. 
Mm. It is now mentioned by the health and safety executive um, as, um, you know, recommended. Um, it would be fabulous to raise the profile of it to make it as equally important as physical first aid because it is equally as important and more to the point they're inextricably linked one mm. impacts the other and vice versa so i you know there are there are so many things that are difficult and challenging and upsetting about the current situation we're in with the yeah. global pandemic of covid-19 one of the things that is being raised is the issue of mental health a little bit more than it was before slowly mm. slowly slowly it's building and building and maybe i hope that will result in more than lip service to that but actually something happening about that so that people see the need for it yeah not just something they've got to tick a box over but the need yeah some something real is um is there a difference between mental health first aid for children and for adults well it's, it's interesting you say that because when people first learned that i was going to train to be an instructor um, they said oh that's brilliant because we really need some extra support for our children and i said oh um actually i've decided to be an adult mental health first aid instructor not a youth and I had many quizzical eyebrows at me at that stage. Well, why are you doing that? And that's where my mantra came from, which was my absolute passion and belief to look after the adults mm -hmm. who were asking to look after our children. Now, I'm not saying we're ignoring the children, <laughs> yeah. but for me, even if there are great strategies to look after the mental health of the pupils, if the adults aren't in the right place and headspace to do that, it won't work. It won't be successful. We need adults who can provide consistency and care um, and stability for the children, as well as their educational needs academically um, and so for me it's that passion of strengthening that strengthening from the leadership right to the teachers to the support staff to the admin staff so that those children can be properly supported by their adults yeah I am like like a thousand percent on this so um last year 2019 i i launched a life work balance campaign Um it's kind of taken a bit of a backseat now because of covid and um it's difficult for people to kind of input in the in the same way you know when they've kind of been working from home and things but um yeah what kind of really spurred me was that i'd said that it was our mission to help teachers achieve a life work balance and somebody came back and went oh well i can't believe that there's nothing in your mission about children and i thought oh, i was just really cross because i i felt at the time as well that i was just fed up of just teachers being written off all the time like you can't just rub them out all the time and then expect them to a good, do a good job you know yes i think obviously the children are so important you have to do everything you know so it helps the children but not at the expense of the teacher you know if if you want in things to i don't know if you want to run a hundred clubs and all these different things because it's good for the children but the teachers can't cope with that that's not helping the children because then all the stuff's going to be rubbish 
so it's I, not it should it doesn't have to be one or the other does it no <laughs> it, it's about them complementing each other and realizing that it's that there's an an interdependence i suppose between them and also compromise as well you don't you have to do every single initiative just because the school next door is doing it you know i i worked um in a school where i think we had like some kind of new initiative every staff meeting honestly we never got time to embed anything or or even understand really what it was that we were supposed to be doing just anyway so yeah when i saw that i just i loved that because i couldn't agree anymore really that it's so important that adults are important as well <laughs> they really are yes I think that the great analogy to use is, um, although maybe not very relevant to people at the moment because they won't have been on one maybe, is the safety announcements on an aeroplane, which if you are listening, which I'm sure we all are very carefully to those safety announcements, and it talks about the oxygen mask. Yeah. It actually, during their verbal explanation and during those little cards that you stare at on the back of your seat, it tells you to put your own oxygen mask on before you attend to the needs of those around you. Yeah. And that's not you being selfish. It's not you saying I'm more important than anybody else. It's because you won't be able to look after those other people around you if you haven't made sure you're in the right place yourself first. And that's quite a, uh, it's a, it's a visual image as well. And it's quite a stark image that people go, oh yes, I see what you mean. That's spoken like a true coach. That's what mine said to me last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, right. We've talked about um, mental health first aid. Um, and we've talked about looking after uh, adults as well as children, but look at, you know, looking after the adults first. Yes. So do you feel then that teaching staff are well enough supported for their mental health i think teaching staff like many other organizations and workplaces um, are supported in a very wide range of ways mm. and there are some great examples and there are some examples where people it's not necessarily that people are actively not supporting mental health and well-being but it's just not being considered maybe and so this is why raising the profile about having conversations just opens people's eyes to it and they might then start to consider i mean it's this is not about statistics and, and numbers but actually in terms of working days lost to mental health um that is quite high overall in the workplace. And that's when we know about it because many people won't actually say if they are feeling unwell, they won't always necessarily say it's due to their mental health condition or issue or, or a problem at that particular time. They might say, oh, I've got a bad back or I'm not feeling great or I'm under the weather because they don't feel able always to be open about their mental health. Unfortunately, stigma and discrimination around mental health does remain. And I don't mean that specifically that it's only happening in education. Uh, I just mean in general. And so the more we can do to raise that awareness, the better. So that people 
know about it, know it, it could be a factor. And that another one of my little mantras is that we don't ever assume anything. Mm. It's unwise to assume. It's very unwise to judge, um, but it's certainly unwise to assume anything. So having open conversations with people in any workplace, particularly in a school, is only going to reap rewards. That's what makes a difference to people. And I, and I say this with my sense of humor um, popping out already, which is, you know, we don't solve well-being by donuts on a Friday. I am so with that. I am so with that. Now, now I like a donut as much as anybody else does. Um, and, uh, and, and I love, you know, and, and often I will bring cakes to schools um, because I just think, you know, that can bring a smile to many people's faces. And that's lovely. But that's not to solve issues around well-being. That's not a well-being initiative. No. Um, actually, giving people time yeah. and space and the feeling that you are not going to be judged is a much much more impactful well-being strategy yeah i think part of the problem with the stigma still being there as well is is about knowledge because you don't know what you don't know i think you know we're talking about the spectrum here and there'll be school leaders who, who really understand there'll be school leaders in the middle and there'll be school leaders who really don't get it and like you say it's it's not because they're deliberately trying to not get it it's just that they don't have any knowledge they don't have any experience of that and it's i suppose it's trying to open that up and until they can have more knowledge then their teachers are not going to feel like they can have that open conversation either to be not judged Yes. And I think the other thing you've highlighted there is that this awareness needs to grow at all levels of mm. a school or an educational setting. Um, it's not just about uh, the big cheeses understanding it. It's mm. about it filtering through all levels. So it's brought me great delight um, Earlier today, I was doing um, part of a, an, a mental health awareness course. So it's the half day course. And on that course, I had um, pastoral support staff. I had teaching assistants. I had teachers. I had deputy head. Um, I didn't have a head today, but I had a governor as well. Now, they're not all from the same school, but they're from different schools and different settings. And it was a delight for me to hear that that was getting threaded through all levels, all areas of the school life. Mm. Um, and you know, if we can get more of that, then it's better. It shouldn't just be for one person designated and they hold the whole weight of it on their shoulders. It's about threading it through all layers. And also, I guess, you know, another reason why that is important is not just the leaders because everyone else could be future leaders as well absolutely and you don't want the yes. problems to repeat themselves either you don't i think there's something very strong about it being um a very integral part of what leaders do have access to in their training because effectively they're line managing people mm. and therefore that consideration of mental health is is vital 
But in terms of having people who are either aware or who have done the, the two-day mental health first aid course, the, re the other reason why it's good to have people at different levels is because we all click with different people and we might feel comfortable saying one thing to one person than we might to another. Mm. Even though they might have been trained in exactly the same way and there's still the same confidentiality and there's still the same you know, knowledge around what they've been trained in, we click with different people mm. and we might feel more comfortable talking as a teacher to another teacher about something that's niggling us at the moment or something that's concerning us at home than we might do speaking to our line manager yeah. or not it might be the other way around and it doesn't matter and it, it really doesn't matter but the point is if there's only one person that quite that could be quite limiting yes yes see what you mean it's interesting actually because um we, as a management team we've real recently done disc profiling that's been really helpful for us because all of a sudden you can you can see if people are opposite you not, not that you don't get on but but you understand each other more um mm. and you can sort of see why yeah you probably wouldn't tell that person something and, it, and it's okay whereas sometimes you can think well why can i not talk to them what's wrong with me what's wrong with them but actually to have a good team, you need to be around the spectrum and you need to find the people that you can kind of share that with. Yes. Don't you? So that is important. Um, so I how linking on. up, I say link, linking on from that is something we talk a lot about in mental health first aid. And it's around seeking that professional help um, that is beneficial for so many people. And sometimes what happens is a person will seek professional help and that might be a counselor a therapist um, and they often or maybe I should say sometimes will come from that a couple of sessions and say it's not working for me I'm going to give up and what can be the case with that is not that that professional is doing the wrong thing or that they don't know what they're talking about it's that there isn't that connection there isn't that bond that has mm -hmm. been developed between the two people so it's not that the counseling isn't working or that the therapy isn't working it's just that you might need to seek somebody else who you click with and it's not to give up on that as a, as a way of getting proper support. It's about seeking something else, which can be quite difficult because services are stretched. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that could be a challenge, but it's always worth pursuing. Yeah. And, and private, um, very expensive as well. Um, I have a friend who's, who's accessed private therapy and it's very expensive. Um, so, how, how do teaching staff access your support then? So there are, there's, there's a myriad in, in across the country and across the United Kingdom um, of um, mental health first aid instructors and courses which are either open or indeed closed uh, to particular groups of people. And it's about us as, I suppose, as, 
as an organization raising the profile of that that training is out there um, like I've been doing in my little area um, every little helps you know you start somewhere and, and, and it grows and grows and grows and I have to say you know if I think back to the first course I ever did when I had it was an open course and there were people from uh, schools and, and teachers and heads etc but there were also other members of the public who were interested from their own workplaces or simply just interested individuals um, who wanted to un undertake it. And from that grows a little bit of, of that word of mouth of people coming out of that going, oh my goodness, you've got to do this. This is really interesting. And slowly, slowly and slowly it builds so that more and more people now are not doing what I did, which is when I heard mental health first aid, I went, what's that then? Mm -hmm. You want more and more people to go, I've heard of that. Yeah. And then they hear one of the things that I hope to be able to do when I run courses related to schools and school and educational based settings is even though it's not specifically for schools, it's for anybody, I can, of course, offer my perspective from my experiences to thread and weave into it so that I can tailor, you know, some of the case studies or the examples that I use so that people can relate to it mm -hmm. and they understand and appreciate that I do know the context that they're working in. Yeah. Having said that, you know, I've done some really interesting work, for example, um, with the local diocese and with some of the clergy and church staff. Mm -hmm. um, and that, even though that's not an area of expertise for me, I did my research. I did make, make sure that I had got things that I knew would be relevant to them. And mm. you do that in, in different sort of closed course contexts. But I think teachers getting to hear that there is this thing out there and um, just pushing for it as part of their professional development, maybe mm -hmm. as part of their appraisal, um, or even just something that they're interested in pursuing themselves, that, that, that would be great. So right now then, because of the pandemic, is this happening online? Um, there's, a, there's a range of things happening. Um, there are the half day course, um, it can be run online. That's what I was doing this afternoon. And I actually split that into two lots of two hours. So I effectively did them as twilights. Mm -hmm. which was it's quite successful actually because it means it seemed that a good number of people could attend because of that mm -hmm. the two-day course can be delivered face-to-face because face-to-face training is still allowed um, obviously maintaining the social distancing um, but it also has been adapted to do online through a blended learning model at the moment um, that's not something I'm doing. I'm doing any of mine face to face, although I'm doing the half day and the refresher course, which has just been um, devised relatively recently. Um, that's being done online. They're shorter courses, those half day courses, and it's beautifully suited to be able to do online. Yeah. No, I'm just being nosy, to be honest. Um, so this is a really good question from Lisa. Um, she says, do you feel the attitude in the general public towards teaching staff during the COVID pandemic has impacted the mental health of teaching staff in general? 
I think what's very interesting is that generally speaking and around the pandemic, I've described it as magnifying how people were anyway beforehand. Mm. And so people who have had underlying anxieties and worries this has potentially not for everyone but potentially magnified that for some people i think there it's it's true enough to say and the, and the research will come out as a result of this and um, that that we don't hold yet that there will be people who have really uh, had a lot of challenge through the isolation mm -hmm. that has occurred but also loads of people have had to homeschool their children mm. and uh, <laughs> there's been a yep. bit of a dawn of realization yep. there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Me too. Um, and, <laughs> and do, and you know, everyone goes, Oh, it's easy for you. You're a teacher. And I say, what on earth makes you think that? Um, <laughs> you have no patience with your own children. And when you're trying to do a job as well, <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, it's, that's a challenge for anyone, but again, Every tiny little thing we can do to help each other is good. I've just tried to do my best to help people around me in the homeschooling thing of knowing what is reasonable and what you give into and what you don't give into and how you try and give some control and autonomy to the children so that it's not you trying to dictate the whole thing because you'll end up in a battle. This is not to say I had it perfect, um, but... I think what it has done for many people is provide them an appreciation and a respect of what teachers do actually do. Unfortunately, alongside that, of course, though that it, it's not always, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Um, we were talking mm -hmm. about unicorns earlier, weren't we? Um, it's, <laughs> for, for, for some people, they've been frustrated and they've not necessarily understood the absolute complexity of what head teachers have dealt with in mm -hmm. order to keep their schools open most of them um, and then to you know risk assessments upon risk assessments upon risk assessments and the whole complexity around that keeping their children and their staff safe and so, you know, we don't always appreciate what we don't know and what we're not involved in. And as you said about mental health, if you don't have the knowledge, mm. then that sometimes can skew how you think about things. Yeah. How old are your children? Um, well, I, I see them in my head very differently to actually how old they are. Um, because <laughs> I think I've got young children and, and I don't have young children. So I've got, um, my son has just started year seven. And my daughter is now in year 10. Oh, well, they're not old, are they? I was thinking, are they away at uni? But really, she was, they were at home and she was saying, yes, I had no. to homeschool them. <laughs> Crack that whip, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not quite. And, and you know, hats off um, my, my, my year, well, she was year nine, obviously, last year. My daughter um, just completely, completely got to grips with how to manage her own learning in a way that frankly I didn't learn till I was at university um absolutely thrilled with that and year six which is what my son was last year um 
that's always what I consider my my true love um, of teaching year six myself when I was a teacher. Uh, and so we had great fun, but we, you know, we went off piste sometimes and we took the theme that's been set by the teacher and moved it to something that suited us. So we had a great home learning project involving my dad and him sharing his stories of traveling around the world for work, um, which my son then made into a PowerPoint presentation, learning about different countries and cultures and flags and the geography. Well, wonderful. And, you know, I was, I had the freedom and the, and the knowledge to know that that was going to definitely tick all the boxes in the national curriculum but actually it was engaging for my son and it was really engaging for my dad as well who was you know in in the flat uh, with his, with my mum and and that was difficult for them yeah I think that's brilliant I was just looking then because um I, I told you um earlier that we kind of have a news day update on a Wednesday and um I don't know the exact figure um but I do know what it translates to but um, it's been published this week, I think, um, about how much learning lost children have actually had. And in English, um, it's not point something percent, but it, it's like not point four is a year, apparently. And it's not point two something. I'm not sure. But basically, it equates to 75% of one school year, um, roughly, I think. So that's obviously not great. But then there will be kind of success stories and I suppose older children who have learned to be independent is amazing yeah. on, on the flip side. It's, it's so easy to think doom and gloom and obviously there will be children and it depends on a child's age and all these different things yes. um, that is going to um, impact and we're going to have to find a way through it. But I just think that's a really, a really nice thing to hear um, because it's usually doom and gloom. <laughs> yes, and, and I think that it's about being realistic. And again, without repeating myself, it's about not assuming anything. So I've been having lots of conversations with teachers um, at, at the start of this term, talking about and, and they've been saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure what to expect when the children come back and how far I'm going to have to take them back. And my response to them has been, take them from where they are, find out where they are and take them from there. Don't assume that mm. everybody has lost 75% of last year. Let's not assume that because actually if that, I don't know those stats, but if that is an average well, we all know about averages, don't we? That means there'll be some people who've lost more than 75 and some people who've lost less than 75. Yeah. So let's, let's do what we're good at, which is meeting the needs of the pupils in front of us. Yeah. Sometimes we can stress about the big picture rather than just taking it one day at a time, can't we? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what changes do you think should be made in the teaching profession so that teachers' mental health is at the forefront? I'm a firm believer in uh, prevention rather than cure in the sense that we start early when teachers first come into whatever training route they experience, which is quite wide ranging now in comparison to mm. in my day where you did a B.Ed. or that was it, um, or, or maybe a PGCE. Um, this is a lot a lot more wide ranging now and i would love to see staff 
well-being and mental health, but also things like time management, prioritization, etc., to be threaded through right from the very start so that teachers come into the profession with an awareness of that not that they've got it all sorted because I'm not sure anybody's got it all sorted but Mm. they they come into it at that stage and so working with them as they train working them as in their induction years as it will be now I think is really important when I do support for example in a school where I'm asked to go and help teachers with their planning because that's what they've asked for um, which is great actually what I find a lot of the time is that yes I might be helping them with planning an English unit of work or how to get progression in the next history document etc etc But more often than that, it's about strategies for how to use that precious PPA time Mm -hmm. so that it is used efficaciously um, uh, to the best effect and impact. And so that you are, you know, I always say I'm going to work really hard during this PPA time because I don't want to work all of Sunday. Yes. (laughs) So actually, I'm really going to go for it. And I'm going to have everything ready with me to hit the ground running at one o'clock or whatever time my PPA starts, so Mm. that I'm really ready to rock and roll with that. And if I've got the pleasure and joy of shared PPA with other teachers, let's agree how that's going to work. Mm. And let's get that out in the open. So that some of the best feedback I I have when I work with teachers like that is they come out and they say, oh my goodness, you've got to get Juliet to go and work with you during your PPA. You get loads done. Yeah. And that's because I'm going, come on, come on, let's move on to the next thing. Let's, we've sorted that. That's brilliant. Well done. Move on. And it's that positive affirmation, confidence building, but saying, right, now that you've set that up this week, next week you can do the same without setting it all up again it's there forever you know have these documents to hand be ready for it actually maybe prepare for your preparation time so that you can really maximize it and it's a joy people come out smiling (laughs) it's it's also about discipline as well and i think back to my ppa when i was teaching primary because i I taught secondary at a time as well um I remember there was an NQT um, that I was opposite, uh, another teacher that we we didn't plan with, um, but I felt like an NQT again. Um, But we never got, we like to chat and you kind of get carried away with that. And because you're in different classrooms all the time and then you're spending all your lunch times marking and after school doing all the work, you feel like you don't get that, you don't get out of your system. And so... It is about self-discipline as well, but but for you and and everybody else, it's it's a tricky thing to navigate. It is, and that's not to say that you can't have that chat because actually that chat might be really good for your well-being. Yeah, but it's almost doing it consciously and saying, um, obviously, unless there's some form of crisis or or great upset, it's about saying, okay, well. Let, let's let's have the chatty bit at the beginning 
mm. because it'd be really great if you could get this, this and this done. Yeah. Or let's do that the other way around. Let's do these three things and then we'll have a cup of tea or whatever it is. And so it, it is, it's about that discipline, but it's, it's not being so regimented about it that you just become robots. Mm. But also, ultimately, it's using that time for great impact for your children and for yourself. Yeah, setting out expectations of what you're expecting yes. to get done. Um, I do a lot of personal development. Um, so I do know as well, saying it out loud is a really good thing. You're more likely to do it <laughs> if you say it out loud. Yes, um, tr true enough. <laughs> Yeah, say it to each other. Just say it to the room. Say it wherever. <laughs> Just say it. This is what we will do. <laughs> um, so what do you recommend for those then who are struggling with their mental health whilst working in a school environment? So say somebody's in a, in a school now, they're struggling. Maybe they don't have a mental health first aider at school. Like, what would you suggest that they do? The world around us has got many limitations and lots of pushes and pulls on resources. However, there is a lot of support out there. And just as you've said there about just wanting to have a bit of a chat that you used to want to have in, in your, during your PPA time, that just bit of a chat could be a key to you moving forward to seeking the support and help you need. I'd say the first thing is you are not alone. There are other people feeling in a similar way to you, not exactly the same as you because you're yourself, um, but there are other people out there who are experiencing all forms of either upset or worry or indeed a mental illness or a mental health problem. So it's about opening the door for yourself to seek some support as a mental health first aider one of the things that we do is we encourage strongly strongly encourage people to seek the support of their gp and the reason for this goes back to what we said right back at the beginning of our conversation and that link between physical and mental health. And the GP is best placed to look at you as a person and look at whether there might be any links between your mental health and your physical health mm. or vice versa. It's a good inroad because the other thing a GP can do is some signposting to other services, support networks, charities, uh, phone lines, etc., etc. So I think that's a really good starting point. I would say it's well worth pointing out at this stage that that process is going to take a little bit of time. And sometimes people don't feel like they've got that time. They might actually be in crisis. Mm. And if somebody is in crisis, there are two, there are lots of organizations actually, but there are two key organizations um, who probably most people will have, have heard about now, which is really great. Um, the Samaritans and uh, Shout. So the Samaritans uh, has a phone line 24 seven. Uh, that's 116123. And that there will always be somebody that picks up the phone to you there. 
uh, non-judgmental listening ear, but similarly shout, which is 85258, is a 24-hour text line and somebody will then get back in touch with you there. And that's knowing that no matter where you are within your 24 hours in the day and night, there is always somebody there to listen to you. Mm. I spent a number of years, um, actually whilst I was a young teacher, I was also a Samaritan volunteer and was there doing the day shifts uh, at weekends, obviously, um, but also night shifts. And, you know, I know that there is a great group of people there who you will get through to. It's all anonymous. Uh, it's all entirely confidential but they are always there to pick up the phone to you. So when you feel alone or lonely, it's knowing that there is something there um, and you can reach out to it. I've, I have um, a, like a Facebook business page and I've recently posted a, a really great little graphic that's got a picture of a person inside a birdcage. Mm-hmm. And it says something for it on, along the lines of, in my darkest moments, I couldn't reach out. So please, can you reach in? Mm. And that's why it's, it's a great thing to be able to reach out for support. But the more people we can have willing to listen to other people and be their listening ear and reach in into them the better hopefully then we've got the reaching out and the reaching in do you think um this is not um something that i ran by you beforehand just just thinking about this conversation and um when we talk about mental health there is this connotation that would if you say mental health it means bad mental health but it's not it's the the mental health and you can have um, just like a physical physical health can be healthy or unhealthy, yes. so, can, so can mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, it feels like a new thing in a way, doesn't it? Um, because it's something that we're talking about more. Do you think that, um, that what people are experiencing is on the rise or that we are talking about it more? Or do you think that we're not talking to each other enough because of social media and phones is is that playing into it maybe we're talking to each other yes it's the million dollar question isn't it so i i I do think um there are certain factors which place pressures on people now which didn't used to exist however there were different factors then (laughs) that don't exist now and and therefore they had those pressures. Um, Have we developed more names and labels for things? Have we Mm. become more skilled in diagnosing things? Possibly. Um, Ultimately, I I think for the, for the unprofessional, (laughs) uh, Mm. that's, you know, you and me and most people for the unprofessional, uh, it can often become very, confusing that and and a bit sort of too big for us to get our head around Mm. and the way I like to look at it is um, what I can do is try to help and deal with the person in front of me yeah and not to solve their problems not to diagnose them but to 
be that listening ear for that person and help them along the way to make their own decisions about how to seek the support that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also probably worth saying that in schools, because you asked me about, you know, what can a teacher do if they're not feeling great at the moment? Many schools, I'd probably go as far as saying most schools, um, but definitely many schools um, have employee assist programs which the schools have bought into, which uh, they provide all sorts of things like, you know, advice about finances and things like that. But often uh, they provide uh, mental health support, counselling sessions, a series of usually telephone counselling, things like that. It's worth asking about. It's the sort of thing that people go, oh, yeah, there's a poster about that in the toilets. <laughs> and mm. they and they remember that they've seen something up in the staff room or on the back of a toilet door or something yeah. um well th those services they are often in schools that that people can access again confidentially so it's worth asking yeah um, definitely definitely so how do you help school leaders look after their own mental health and the mental health of the staff Yes, well, it's the chicken and egg, isn't it? Because we actually place a lot on school leaders. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I always say, <laughs> when, when you talk to a head teacher, for example, and I do a lot of one-to-one -one support, um, well-being support, call it that. It's not counselling, um, but well-being support for heads. Uh, and we, we often joke about, is that one in the job description then? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. there are all sorts of things on their plate that they have to deal with. Mm. And when, in lots of professions, people in a senior position like a head teacher are entitled to regular supervision. Mm. They just get it as part of their job. Education is not yet at that place where that is considered as just something you are entitled to. And so as much of that collegiate support that I think heads can get from working with each other collaboratively, but also from other people like me or other advisors or, or other colleagues or maybe a, a coach or something like that, I think is a strong and wise investment. And so raising that profile with governors could be the key to that because if governors are aware of that and we are seeing this now we're seeing governors who say oh i'm i'm the governor responsible for for adult well-being and i go oh wonderful um and you know we don't just want it to be a title we want that to mean something in real life but if that becomes acknowledged as something that is some important to sustain the head in order that they sustain their staff, then we need to invest in that. And I don't necessarily mean money investment, although it might be, it's actually time investment. What lots of people need most of all is time. I've been in contact with somebody this week and I've said, um, you know, would you like a chat this week? Um, and this email correspondence, oh yes, yeah, I'm really busy. I've got lots on this week. Um, I appreciate, I know you're there, Juliet, do, should I need to pick up the phone? And so I just replied back, so that's absolutely fine. Just to let you know, though, sometimes when we schedule a call, it gives you the chance to pause in your life, mm. get off the Ferris wheel, 
have a moment and then you can get back on again if you want but it's just that pausing that stopping and that reflecting and not constantly having to deal with stuff all the time yeah I think the, the, um, the ethos of a school, that feeling you get when you go into a school and it, and it feels like it's caring and compassionate, it does come from the top. Mm-hmm. And that's because the person at the top is being looked after and looks after themselves. And we, we do sometimes have to ask for that. We have to say, this is what I would like, or this is what I need. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, I I work with a with a coach now, and um, I feel in some ways it's 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 very accepted in business. Actually, um, there's a thing yes. that you should do, and uh, especially in America, whereas in school we're kind of like, oh no, I can I can go it alone, and and I think one of the taboos here. Obviously, we're talking about mental health, and and sometimes that's a bit of a taboo subject. But the the taboo here is that often it's kind of a thing where we, we don't it's like the opposite to what teachers would want to do and that's why they want to cancel that that appointment oh, i don't need it i'm okay i can survive i can i can go another three weeks um on full steam before i collapse and at that point then i look into it and it's so yes. opposite to to the way we work as teachers which is probably why we kind of find it hard to get on the bandwagon Yes, you, you've, um, you've prompted me to, to re- one of the, the loveliest things that anybody's ever said to me was, <laughs> it's going to sound a bit odd, but they said to a group of people, when Julia asks you, how are you? She really means it. Mm. And for me, that's really quite special because I think that's what we can do for each other. Mm. You don't need to be trained to do that. Um, <laughs> I think training is great, but <clears throat> I think we can do that for each other. And I think the other thing is to, it's going back to when you asked me, you know, my, my backstory and where I started. And I said how fortunate I felt to have jobs, which I love. Mm. And I think teaching is a job which many teachers do really love sometimes they forget that or sometimes Mm. it gets lost and i think it's a great privilege to be able to rekindle that love of teaching in teachers to give them that confidence and that can be through to professional development but it can also be acknowledging that they are a human being alongside that yeah yeah and you know what that's clearly something that we need because you know so many teachers are leaving within the first five years we clearly need something that's going to rekindle that kind of passion in people to to keep going um because you know it's not just about the the cost is it of retraining but it's the experience that we're losing which is um just dreadful yes and and i think the the feeling of, of of a staff where you've got that breadth and depth of experience um, is is really quite special when that when you find that there um, you've got new teachers you've got teachers who've been you know a, a sort of in the middle of their career you might have 
teachers who've had other careers before and they bring a different dynamic and mm -hmm. set of skills into the situation. I mean, that's a really rich environment to educate our children, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a casualty, so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, may, may, maybe we'll have to rekindle it in you. Let's just set that as my mission. <laughs> I really like my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also, you know, I've not left education. I love, I love the fact that I've found um, something that I really want to help teachers with. Um, yes. And, and, and just, I suppose, similar to you, really, which is really good. Um, right. So I'm going to ask you three closing questions. Um, right. If you could wave a magic wand, how would you solve the life work balance problem? Hmm. <laughs> right, magic wand scenario. I think I would coach and mentor teachers to understand what sort of people they are and therefore the impact that that has on how they manage their own time mm. so that they regain a sense of control as to what is happening and how they deal with it. I'm going to have another magic wand though. That's cheating, isn't it? Because I think the other magic wand is going to sound a little bit boring, but it's not really. Um, it's about having systems and structures. Mm. And systems and structures that allow people in schools to know what's coming ahead so mm. that they can plan for it. It's about things like knowing what people's roles and responsibilities are so that things aren't done twice. That yes. sounds all very boring, but actually that has a huge impact. People being appraised so that they feel against the targets they have been fairly set, they are being celebrated. And that if people need to be held to account, they are being held to account in a fair and just way. So that's where my magic ones would come. It's that understanding of ourselves as teachers and leaders and the impact that has on our efficacy and, and our ability to manage our work and our outside of work, but also systems and structures that's, that support that too. Ah, wow, I love those answers because, yeah, I think... Um... Well, the systems and structures, obviously, as a business owner, I can see how that is helpful. And, and yeah, I've worked in a lot of schools and things do get done more than once. And, and what, what other profession can, you know, just a change of year group destroy your life? Mm. Because you could have been in the same year group for three years. And sometimes I've, I've heard it talked about before, you know, like, oh, we'll sort her out, we'll put her in so-and-so, yeah. Like, we'll deliberately destroy her life. We know that that will destroy her life. We're deliberately doing it. Um, so that's, yeah, amazing. But also, we were having the conversation just, just before we came on, weren't we, that I said that the work I've done on personal development and learning about myself, if I were in teaching now, it would be very different. And um, it, it is about understanding yourself and, and how much it's difficult to kind of touch upon it because if we're not ready to to think about it 
but what what can we change for ourselves really yeah yes it it's that it is that taking ownership and that that funny word of empowering yourselves um that there there is a strong element to that not that we that that's a hundred percent of the answer um because I, I do, as you would only expect me to say, believe that there is a lot of education and awareness raising around what mm-hmm. well-being and mental health actually means. And I think that does need... Look, I've got three magic ones now. You better stop <laughs> me. I could come up with... <laughs> I've not answered your question, have I? But, you know, it's, be- it's because it's multifaceted. It's because it's not simple. Um, but... It's neither is it on a piece of paper. I think those things are very practical things that you could do. Yeah, no, no, I agree because you're not going to be able to change your school's leadership. You're not going to be able to change the year group you're in, but you can make small changes that, that together will, will make a difference. And it, it might not be, you know, if you work 70 hours a week, you might not be able to get it down to 37 and a half you might be able to improve it and it's and it's t- it's taking joy out in the improvement of it as well changing yes it. yes absolutely and um, where do you think education is going to go in the next 10 years um i think i would have been very reluctant to answer that a year ago and even more discombobulated to answer it now mm. um because I think there have been very many benefits that we have come to learn about because we've had no choice with regards to remote learning. There are benefits of that. For me personally, I don't think you can ever take away from being with people face to face in a room and Mm -hmm. developing relationships um, and remembering those teachers who really got you and understood you and built your confidence on the basis of really sound subject knowledge and pedagogy, but delivering that in that face-to-face way. I would be very sad if either of those things were lost because I think there could be an element of let's call it blended learning who who knows yeah no it is it is a real thing and I've thought about this a lot actually you know in the future are they gonna sort of say that schools are only there half the time or they're only going to be there till lunchtime and then we have to pick them up and it's difficult really because if I take away what I feel about the education side of it and think about it just mm. as a parent with a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I find that very stressful because mm. then I have to figure out what happens next because I can't carry out a job with a two-year-old and a four-year-old or, or even just a four-year-old or a five-year-old if, if it were to happen next year or whatever. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of teachers out there with children thinking, okay, mm. if this happened... And I was remote teaching two days a week. And so my, and my children were at home and I've got a year one child. What does that even mean? Mm. So it is very interesting. If you even just taking the education part away, there has to be something, there has to be some childcare element. And I know that school is not childcare but it does serve that purpose as well, that that part would need to be replaced somewhere. 
yeah there's there's a societal shift that needs to take place if that's going to happen mm-hmm. um but and yes i would imagine that um there will be people i'm, I'm sure and starting to think about that and whether that would have pros and cons for the economy and all sorts of things like that i i think on the education side of things i am delighted that the world of education that we are in is rekindling the whole curriculum uh, i believe very strongly and passionately around you know core skills for for pupils but i also know that what the benefits of PE and outdoor learning and music and design technology and art I know what those benefits are as well and I I really hope that that won't be lost I really hope that that will maintain the profile that was starting to be just lifted Mm. um, (laughs) uh, last year I I think Um, and and I would love to see that carry on because I think that that builds all sorts of interesting adults for the future yeah yeah when the when they're more well-rounded and and last question then who was your favorite teacher at school and why well i think it would have to be mrs booth and mrs booth was a maths teacher at secondary school and i had a mindset from all sorts of for all sorts of reasons of the fact that i couldn't do maths um through junior school start of secondary school and I, yet I found myself in the top math set for some bizarre reason, but just didn't believe in myself and found it very, very difficult. And I was put in a group then with lovely Mrs. Booth, who said, not only do I think you can do this, but we're actually going to put you in early for your exam because i i hit that little bit of most of most well i did gcses but i did a maths o level and Mm. i was put in early for it and she made me believe in myself as a mathematician and she gave me one-to-one feedback about things i remember her the marking on the on the questions that i'd done and her acknowledging the steps i'd taken and building that confidence in me and i i always attribute the fact that i have loved teaching maths to other children because i appreciated the way it was broken down for me mm-hmm. because i didn't just get it and she made me see you can still get it but this is the, these are the processes you need to go through and you can work methodically and here's, you're doing well and all that confidence. And mm. that's something I've always tried to give to children I've taught in maths. So the lovely Mrs. Booth in uh, Parswood High School in Manchester. <laughs> so hopefully she she's listening. Somebody. Oh, hopefully. Wouldn't that be fab? <laughs> yeah. It's happened before, I think, where they've, um, people have mentioned like the favourite teacher and they've got in touch or I think last week i could have well i say this like i've published them i've recorded quite a few haven't published any for season two yet um but i'm sure there's somebody in season two who knows their teacher in fact i know it was it was steve bladden and it was it was a bonus episode um but yeah he he actually bumped into his his favorite teacher and now he does something with him every week which is really oh, nice. How lovely! Oh, yeah. that, that is lovely. I've I've just I've just had um, 
a, a sort of a rearrangement in my house and, and I've managed to get myself a, a sort of a dedicated music room and I'm just getting ready to frame a picture of um, a violin teacher I had who was the former leader of the Halle Orchestra in, in Manchester. And he had the signed print, which he gave to me when, when, I, when I finished lessons with him. And again, it's that per, sort of person who you just remember. Um, he sadly um, died, uh, but you remember him for that passion and that encouragement and that relationship built that grows you as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you just made me think of um, a dance teacher I had actually, um, and I, and I don't remember um, I don't remember him talking much, but I remember him. He was just very confident, which made you confident. Um, but I think when yes. he when he when he taught me, he must have been about eighty. <laughs> he must have put honestly. Yeah, um, this was ballroom dancing. I did not disco at the time. Oh, lovely. <laughs> no, he, um, yeah, I'm sure it was about 80. Anyway, um, yeah, it's nice to uh, have these little memories. But Juliet, thank you so much for all the all the things we've talked about today. I think there's so much there that teachers, leaders will be able to relate to. Um, we've talked about so much um, and hopefully people are going to be able to follow you now on your, um, on your channels, which we'll make sure on the show notes. Um, and just find out more about what you've got to say. Thank you so much. I think the opportunities that are coming about now for um, people like myself and others who are doing the same, it's, it's just wonderful because just the more you talk about it, another ear will open, another eye will open. Uh, You're raising that awareness. You're getting more people on board and that that's just ultimately uh, the sort of society and the sort of world that, that I would wish we could all live in. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, when you say that one ear, it's not one ear because when that person gets it, they talk to somebody else and, and if they're a leader as well, that goes through their organization, that could be 50 people, um, mm-hmm. one at a time, one at a time. Yes. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> one, one bite at a time. And, um, um, and we, you know, we, we can only do what we can do, but we can all do something. And that's, that's a real positive message of hope around mental health and well-being. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It starts with us. As a teacher at 27 years old, I'd have hated it if somebody said that to me. It was the job's fault. There were simply not enough hours in the day. And this is still true. But I know that I've now opened myself up to making small changes to things that I can control to make things better for myself, not anyone else. I thought that the strategies Juliet described to make PPA more effective were really useful. The hardest part for us as human beings is sticking with that. Even now, I know that once COVID has settled down and we can get back to an office, I will be there a lot less because I'm really distracted by the conversation. I love to talk and join in. I just can't help myself. It's about knowing yourself and trying to use appropriate strategies to manage yourself. If I was still teaching... I'd be definitely asking for PPA at home because I've learned that this would help me spend less time working. 
I really hope that our conversation challenges you to consider what one small change you could make to shave off even a few minutes each day. Start there. You'll find everything that Julia and I talked about in the show notes. Our listenership has grown so much during the past 15 months since we started the show. So if you love listening, I'd be so grateful for your five-star review on your usual podcast app. And did you know that you can always join me in the Teachers Podcast community on Facebook? See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.